Good afternoon. It is a blessing to be here today. It's encouraging to see everyone, to see many with their Bibles out, eager to be nourished by God's Word. Others who can't have their Bibles out but have children who are sponges soaking in uh, everything that, that we're doing here today. It's a blessing to have a spiritual family such as this, that we can come together and praise the Lord and focus on uh, his, his will for our lives. Two months ago, we started a series of charts entitled Coming to Know God. And, and our goal in this is to present a big picture view of the gospel by, by starting from the very foundation, starting from square one. And by working our way in, in a series of five charts through some of the concepts, some of the most foundational concepts of the good news of salvation. We weren't able to do this last month uh, because of Eric and I's trip to Guatemala, but we're going to pick up where we left off two months ago. And our goal in these studies is, is twofold. Number one, it's to teach the gospel, but also it is to prepare us to teach the gospel. As those who have responded to the gospel, that we might be able to go on and share this with others. And so I hope this will help not only motivate you uh, by seeing the, the wondrous news of salvation, but also equip you as you seek to share that with others. We started two months ago with the foundational question, what is the purpose of life? And the Bible makes the answer to that question very simple and very clear. In the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1, if we start on the very first page of our Bible, talks about how God created man in his image, according to his likeness. If we want to know why we are here on earth, we need to ask the one who put us here on earth. And God says he created us in his image. And there's a lot of different things that we talked about with that, but I think one of the most primary aspects of that is that God created us with the capacity and the intent that we should reflect his character. We should reflect his image or his glory within our lives. We are intended to be God's self-portrait. And just like an artist may paint many beautiful landscape paintings and you can see his talent and his view of beauty, if he paints a self-portrait, we see his personal characteristics. God intends for us to reflect his personal characteristics, things like love and holiness and righteousness, uh, forgiveness and grace and mercy. We are um, to be mirrors of his character. God intends us as children to be imitators of him. But we talked about how the only way we can fulfill that is by coming to know God. You can't imitate somebody that you don't know. We can't reflect the character of somebody who we haven't come to understand. And so God revealed himself to us through his son, Jesus, coming down to the earth, uh, walking among us, showing us his character in action. Jesus, though, uh, after dying upon the cross, left and left the Spirit to guide his apostles and prophets to record for us his words, his actions, and the continued teachings of the Spirit that we might come to know God. And so today, as we open our Bibles, we have the revelation of Almighty God, his autobiography, and we can come to know who he is and what his desire for our lives is, so that we can fulfill that purpose, so that we can reflect his character. So today I want to build on that idea uh, by turning our attention to another chart that I've entitled, Know Your Failure. And the question that we want to ask here is, how well have we done fulfilling that purpose for which God created us? 
by the title of the chart, uh, you should be able to see already, we haven't done very well at all. And I want to give a, a, a warning in this study, and normally as I start this study with uh, anybody that I'm studying personally with, I, I say this, this, this study is going to be a little bit of a downer. Uh, it's not going to be within itself the most uplifting and encouraging message. But I think what we're going to see is it is vitally important that we come to understand our sin, our failure, and what it is that we rightly deserve before we can fully understand and appreciate the good news of salvation. Before we can appreciate salvation, we first need to understand what it is we're being saved from, or else salvation has no uh, significance. Before we can appreciate God's grace, we need to first understand what it is that we deserve. And so we're going to be traveling through some darker ideas in this study, but I, I want to give you assurance that there is light at the end of the tunnel. And that as we look at some of these serious and in some ways discouraging ideas, we're going to see in contrast to that the brightness of the hope that God has offered to us as we continue. And so we want to start where we left off in our last study with God's perfect image, that we're intended to be mirrors of his character, intended to be self-portraits of Almighty God. But how have we done with that? If you look at the world around you, you look at mankind, does it look like we have accomplished that purpose? Well, certainly not. We recognize that the world is broken and that all of us have fallen short of God's glory. If you want to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3, the passage that uh, Jonathan read for us a little bit earlier, towards the end of that reading in Romans 3 and verse 23, we read, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What, what is sin? How would you define it? Well, the word sin here literally means to miss the mark. Uh, it's an, an error, a deviation. But, but what, is it, what is this mark that we've missed? He says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The, the mark is the purpose that we talked about in our last study. It is the character and the image of God. And what we have all done is we have missed that mark. We have all fallen miserably short of the glory of God. You, you imagine us shooting a bow and arrow and we're aiming at the target. And the target is the image and glory of God. And we shoot and, and we don't just like miss the mark a little bit. But we fall completely short. We, we don't even hit the target. That's the picture of mankind and our relationship with God. We have all fallen miserably short of God's glory. And while, as we said in verse 24, we're going to see a glimpse of that hope being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, uh, we're first going to have to understand verse 23 before we're going to be able to get to the salvation of verse 24. We first need to understand our condition before God. That, that perfect self-portrait that God intended for us to be. Uh, imagine for a moment, you have this, this beautiful painting, and somebody comes along and they take a bucket of black paint and they splatter it all over that paint. That is sin. We have ruined God's perfect self-portrait in our lives. Imagine that you have a crystal clear mirror that's intended to reflect your image. Somebody comes along and they break it into a hundred million different pieces. That is sin, brethren. We are broken mirrors. We are ruined 
paintings. Sin is a deviation, any deviation from the character of God. You know, have you ever thought, well, what, what makes sin, sin? Did, did God sit down one day and just say, well, you know, I, we'll, we'll say telling the truth. We'll, we'll say that's a good thing. And, and lying, you know, let, let's say that's a bad thing. Well, no. Sin and righteousness are inherent within God's character. Lying is wrong because God is truth. And lying is, is a deviation, is a, is a breaking of his perfect image within our life. Uh, adultery, unfaithfulness is wrong because God is faithful. It's a deviation from his character. And you can think about any variety of sins. What it all comes back to is a failure in the purpose for which we are created. We are deviating from God's character. We're not reflecting his image and his glory. And so all of us have tainted the glorious image of God imprinted on our souls. We are broken mirrors and ruined paintings. And that's this picture that Romans 3 gives us. If you look earlier in Romans 3, as Jonathan read for us in verse 9 through 12, here we see the world from God's perspective. You know, to us, sin may not seem like that big of a deal from an earthly perspective. Well, lying, everybody does it. It doesn't cause that much harm in most cases. Uh, you know, when we can think of any variety of sins, and, and they are, are normalized in our society. But here in Romans 3, we see the world, we see sin from God's perspective. What does God have to say? Romans 3, starting in verse 9, it says, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous. Not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. I told you, this is not going to be the most encouraging lesson within itself. That passage there sounds pretty desperate. And we, we look at that passage and we think, well, none righteous? Not one, none who seeks for God, no one is good. Well, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. You know, from an earthly perspective, when we compare ourselves on, on the scale from Hitler to Mother Teresa, you know, I, I'm doing pretty good. But that's not the standard. The standard is the glory and the image of God. And what God tells us is that on that standard, we have all fallen miserably short. None of us have, have truly, consistently sought God the way that we need to. All of us have turned aside, have deviated from his character, and at the end of the day, we have all fallen miserably short. Sin takes something priceless and makes it valueless. Sin takes something pure and holy and it drags it through the mud. It's henceforth worthless to perform the task for which God created it. Uh, Imagine, uh, again, that self-portrait that you threw black paint all over. What is it worth now? Are, are you going to continue to keep that painting up in your foyer and, and you know, admire it and, and show it to everybody that comes into your house? Well, no. You've ruined it. What about that mirror that you've broken into a hundred different pieces? Are you going to continue to keep that up in your bathroom and, and admire yourself in it? Well, no, it, it no longer serves its purpose at all. And so what 
does our sin deserve? What does our sin earn us? Romans 6, verse 23, if you want to turn a few pages over, tells us that the wages of sin is death. Now again, at the end of that passage, he says, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We're going to get to that in a later study. There is light at the end of this tunnel, but before we can appreciate the light, we first have to understand the first part. The wages of sin is death. Wages is what, what we've earned, what we deserve. Because of our brokenness, because we have ruined God's perfect image within us, we deserve to be thrown out. We don't deserve to be continue to, to hang on God's wall for Him to continue to admire Himself in our reflection. We failed. And because we no longer serve the purpose for which He created us, we deserve death. And what we're talking about here with death is not just physical death, just like he talks about eternal life at the end of this passage. In the first part of Romans 6.23, he's also talking about eternal death, spiritual death, not just a physical death. We see this concept throughout the scriptures. In Ezekiel 18 and verse 4, God says, Behold, all sins are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins will die. Well, what does it mean for a soul to die? Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28, if you want to turn over there, we see the same concept. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28, here Jesus issues a warning to us. He says, do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. We're not just talking about the death of the body here. That's something that we understand, that, that we can see. As the soul departs from the body, that the source of life is separated from this empty shell, we see physical death. But what is spiritual death? What does it mean for a soul to die? Well, just like physical death is, is the separation of the, the life source from the body, spiritual death is the separation of the life source of God, the giver of all life, from the soul itself. And so here when we read the wages of sin is death, we are talking about an eternal death of the soul. And just as physical death, we, we understand as something that is associated with pain, with finality, with separation from our loved ones, Jesus tells us that there is something much greater that we need to fear than that. Something that is associated with a, a much greater pain and finality, that of being separated from God himself for all eternity. The Bible also talks about this as the second death. We studied this recently in Revelation 21 and verse 8. If you want to turn your Bibles back over there, Revelation 21 and verse 8. Here we read, but for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second you know, the first death is a very, very fearful thing. Death is something that, that we don't like to think about, that we don't like to talk about. 
something that, that brings terror to our minds, but how much more should this idea of the second death, the separation of the soul from God, um, be something that we fear? Now, Revelation 21, as we studied recently, is a very comforting passage. Often, Revelation 21, verse 1 through 7, is, is read in, in funerals. To talk about how God will dry every tear from their eye. He will give them a rest where there is no more death, no more crying, no more pain. But we can't fully appreciate that unless we understand verse 8 as well. Here, God is offering us something so great, and yet if we reject it, the consequences are dire. And here he describes it as a place that burns with fire and brimstone. Jesus in Mark 9 says that hell is a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. You know, Jesus talked about hell more than anybody in the entire scriptures. Why is that? Because Jesus has the solution, right? And yet, if we want to appreciate the salvation, the deliverance that Jesus provides, we need to understand what it is that we're being saved from. And Jesus didn't hesitate to let people know what the consequences were. Here we have a picture of continual destruction, eternal decay. And I, I, I don't think is that we're talking about literal worms and literal fire and literal brimstone any more than in Revelation 21. We're talking about literal gold and literal pearls. But here we have described to us in terms that our earthbound minds can begin to comprehend the torment of being separated from God for all eternity. And brethren, that's really what this death is about. It's about being separated from God himself, the source of all things good, the source of life. If you want to turn your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Here we read about Jesus coming again to bring judgment. We start here in 2 Thessalonians 1, starting verse 6. It says, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. This is an eternal destruction, uh, an eternal decay, where the, the fire is not quenched, the worm does not die. But notice the last phrase there in verse 9. He says, away from the presence of the Lord from the glory of his power. Brother, the, the worst thing about hell is not fire and, and worms and brimstone. It's that God isn't there. That we are separated from the source of all things good. And when you're separated from the source of all things good, what you're left with is all things bad, pain and sorrow and death and distress. I don't think the picture that we have in Scripture is, is God sitting down one day and, and concocting, you know, well, what, what's the worst torment that I can make for, for sinners? 
No, certainly he has prepared a place for Satan and his angels uh, that they might not enter into the gates of heaven. But I think the, the pain and the sorrow of hell is the natural result of being separated from God himself for all eternity. Brother, in this life, we may suffer great pain and sorrow, but in this life, even though there's much darkness, there's also light. You, you may suffer, but there are things that bring comfort. There are times of rest and recuperation. There are family and friends to bring us comfort. There's joys of life to distract us and help ease the pain. There's always hope that tomorrow may be better. If we fail to respond to this invitation that God is providing for us, if we fail to respond to the gospel, then we will have none of that. No light, no hope, no time for rest or recuperation, no family or friends to give us comfort, nothing to distract our pain. That is what God has come to save us from. The same bus from eternal separation from him. And this separation from God is the necessary consequence of sin. If you want to turn your Bibles to the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 59. Isaiah 59 is God is rebuking the children of Israel as they question why they are in this situation, why he is allowing them to be judged. Notice what God says. Isaiah 59 verse 1 and 2, he says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short, that it cannot say, nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. If we're lost, if we receive eternal judgment, it's not because God doesn't have the power to save. It's not because his arm is too short and he was trying to reach out and he just, we slipped through his fingers. It's not because his ear is too dull. It's not because he can't hear our cries. It's not because he doesn't care, because he's shutting us out. God says, the reason that you're experiencing this judgment is because of sin. Because your sin has created a separation between you and your God. God, while he is loving and compassionate and desires to save us and is willing to, to do whatever it takes to call us back unto him, God is also a holy God and a righteous God. And he cannot have fellowship with us in our sins. And so if we refuse to let go of our sins, then we refuse to receive the gift of God's grace that he is offering. If we're unwilling to leave our sin behind, God cannot compromise his character to have fellowship with us. We might ask the question sometimes, well, how could a loving God send anyone to hell? I think... Another question that we need to ask is, how could a holy God not? If we fully appreciate his holiness and his righteousness, we recognize that God can't compromise that to let sin and wickedness into his presence in eternity. We, we focused on this in our study of Revelation recently, but I want to reiterate it for us here. When God sent Jesus down to the cross to die in our place, what he, in effect, was saying is that if you go to hell, you're going to go there over my dead body. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God desires deeply our salvation. And yet, 
if we fully appreciate the weight of sin, what it has done to the image of God within us, what it has done to our relationship with him, if we fully recognize its seriousness, then we will recognize why it is that a loving God could, in fact, punish us eternally. So what can we learn from all of this? What is the point? What are we to take away? I think the primary application that we need to see if we're going to appreciate and accept the gospel is that only those who recognize their brokenness and need for God's grace will be saved. We can't skip over this part in presenting the gospel. Yes, the gospel is a great message of hope, of salvation, of deliverance, of God's grace. But that deliverance, that salvation, only has significance if we understand what it is that we are being saved from. I want to use an illustration. When we were in Guatemala, Eric frequently used this uh, illustration. I think it, it powerfully helps us understand this concept of recognizing the, the weight of our sin before we can appreciate the weight of God's grace. Imagine for a moment that you are getting on to uh, an airplane flight, and as you uh, get onto the plane, the flight attendant hands you a parachute. It says, here, put this on. This will make your trip more enjoyable. So you decide you'll test it out. You, you put it on your shoulders, uh, and you, you sit down, and as you're flying on the plane, you realize, well, that, you know, this is kind of uncomfortable. Uh, you feel its weight on, on your shoulders, and you can't sit entirely in the seat. And you notice there's a lot of other people on the plane, and they're not wearing parachutes. And you notice they're kind of pointing at you and, and uh, giving you funny looks. So after a while, you think, well, I don't know what that flight attendant was saying, but they, she, she lied to me. This is not making my trip more enjoyable at all. And so you throw it down, and you don't want to have anything to do with that parachute. Let's change the scenario. Imagine for a moment that you're walking onto this airplane, and we'll say partway into the trip, or else you probably wouldn't have got on in the first place. Uh, the, the flight attendant hands you this parachute and says, at some point during this flight, we are going to fall from thousands of feet in the air, and you're certain to die if you don't take this parachute. What's your reaction going to be? Let me put that on right away. And it doesn't matter now how I feel sitting in this chair. It doesn't matter the weight of it on my shoulders. This is needed to save my life. I think sometimes we fail to appreciate the gospel. because We, we, we have this mistaken idea, well, that th this is just going to make my life better. And if that's all that I think the gospel is, well, then as, as I go through life and the rest of the world around me, is not living that way, and, and there are limitations on what pleasures of sin I can enjoy, I'm going to think, well, the, the gospel is false. It's not making my life any better. But if I fully appreciate what the gospel is really about, that it's to save me from my sin and my brokenness and what that sin deserves, the eternal consequences of separation from God, it's not going to matter what sacrifices I have to make. I'm going to put on that parachute without any question. That is how we need to see the gospel, brothers. And we need to recognize our brokenness if we're going to receive God's grace. David recognized it. If you want to turn your Bibles to Psalm 51. Remember David and his life. 
how he had seen Bathsheba and lusted after her, and he allowed that lust to dwell within his heart to the point that he committed adultery with another man's wife. And to cover it up, he tries to call Uriah, Bathsheba's wife, home from, from battle and make it look like it was his child. But when that doesn't work, finally he concocts this plan to send Uriah out with the battle and to have the army step back at a certain point where Uriah would be certain to be killed. You think about the weight of David's guilt. When finally he has his you-are-the-man moment with the prophet Nathan. And he recognizes all that he done. You think about those that he had wronged. Not only Uriah, but you think about the other men that had died in that battle just to cover up David's sin. Notice David's statement in the Psalm of Repentance. Psalm 51, in verse 16 and 17. David says to the Lord, For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. What's the attitude that God wants us to have when we come face to face with our failure? When we recognize that we are ruined paintings and broken mirrors? David recognizes, I can't pay it back. I can't bring Uriah back from the dead. I, I, I can't right the wrongs that I have caused. I can't, it doesn't matter how many animals I sacrifice, doesn't matter uh, how much blood of, of bulls and goats I bring. I can't wash this blood from my hands. But he recognizes that what God has called him to do is not pay it back. What are the sacrifices of God? A broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. I think sometimes we, when we come face to face with our guilt, we, we try to pick up all the pieces and try to put it back together. And, you know, you didn't see that. Now, what God wants us to do is pick up those broken pieces and bring them before him. To recognize our brokenness, to recognize our guilt and the full weight of it. Not try to cover it up, but to bring it to him that he might restore us. That's the point, brother. That's the attitude that God desires from you and from me. Remember Luke chapter 18. Here we're told that Jesus tells a, a parable to those who trusted in their own righteousness. He says, starting in verse 10, Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Which one are we? Which one went home justified? Which one received the, the, the cleansing of God's grace? The one who recognized his brokenness. I think sometimes we, we think that, that we can respond to the gospel because that's what good people do. 
Brother, if you recognize that you need to come back to the Lord today, or, or if someone here recognizes that they need to commit their life to the Lord, it, it's not that, well, I'm going to be baptized because I've, I've, I've reached this point in my spiritual growth that I think I'm ready to make that commitment. That's not how it works. No, baptism isn't for good people. Baptism is for bad people who want to become good. If we're going to come to the Lord, we need to come to Him in our brokenness. We need to come recognizing that we have nothing of value left to offer Him. That if we're going to have any value, it's going to be by what He is able to do within our hearts. James chapter 4 tells us how we need to come to the Lord. James 4 Starting in verse 6, we read, But he gives a greater grace. Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. If you recognize that you need to come to the Lord today, there's only one way you come to the Lord. And that's in humility. That's recognizing your own unworthiness. Recognizing your failure. Willing to to own up to that fully. And coming to God to seek the restoration that only He can provide. Brethren, each and every one of us are broken mirrors. We are ruined paintings. And on our own, we will stay that way. It's only by God's grace that we can become good. Heaven is not for good people. Heaven is for forgiven people. Are you forgiven today? If you recognize that there is still sin staining the perfect image of God in your soul, maybe there, there's some hidden sin that you need to bring before the Lord, that you need to to make known to these brethren so that we can pray for you. God wants to put the broken pieces back together. And there's no question that God has the power. It's not that his ear is too dull or that his arm is too short. If you go home today not in a right relationship with the Lord, there's only going to be one reason for that. And that's that you're not willing to bring your brokenness before the Lord. That you're not willing to acknowledge the sin in your life. God is gracious. God sent his son to pay the price for your sin. If you recognize that you're not in the right relationship with the Lord today, won't you let that be known to these brethren here? That we can pray for you, that you can, if you've never committed your life to the Lord, you can bury that brokenness, that old man of sin in the waters of baptism. You can be raised by God's grace to a new life, an eternal life, a hope of eternity in his presence. If you need to respond to God's invitation today, please don't wait. Please let these brethren know as we stand and sing together.